0: this morning we're blessed to have moses cutiola come and you're familiar with him especially on a music standpoint um hey now i'm here uh familiar with him on a music standpoint but um he's also a teacher and a preacher and i would encourage you all just to pray for him and his wife adriana Uh, they are along with the leadership at the church here prayerfully considering and looking at and examining what what does the the future look like he's going to graduate with his mdiv in december and there's a desire to uh to to do some sort of ministry back home in malawi um is that the direction they go to and what is that is that church planting is that academy establishing is that working with a seminary like just there's a lot of variables but a lot of desire for ministry Uh, back in Africa for him and his family, and we want to support that and engage with that. And so we just encourage you, uh, be blessed by his teaching this morning, but engage uh, him and his family in prayer for the days, uh, months, and even years ahead. Uh, The Lord would guide and make those things clear. So uh, with that, Moses, come on up.
1: Good morning. Like Aaron said, I hope you picked up the handout on your way in. Just a quick word on the handout. I've added two simple definitions of what we're going to be talking about this morning. A definition for sovereignty and a definition for providence. If you notice in the title, I've titled the lesson today, The Place of Prayer in God's Sovereign Providence. I've kind of bring those two terms together. Because most of the times I feel like when we think about providence we're talking about God's purpose or how he aligns events in the world to achieve a specific goal. And then when we think of sovereignty, we just focus on, well, his control or his right to do as he pleases with his creation. We don't necessarily attach purpose to that. But I want us to think of both of those as we consider prayer this morning. So let's jump in. I feel prayer is one of the soft spots of a believer. I mean, at at least it is mine because no matter how much I pray, I feel convicted every single time I hear someone on prayer because I feel like there is always, I don't pray enough and most of the times it's true. It's been my experience that every time I hear someone on prayer, there is always an aspect that hits me That I feel I don't do well enough and could use some work. If you would say, I think I'm good on prayer, I would ask you, how many people have you told this past week that you're going to be praying for them, but you haven't necessarily done so? It's so easy for us to say, well, brother, I'll be praying for you when just a way of Ending a conversation when a brother has, you know, shared their struggles with you. And we just don't want to say, I hope it goes well. Because that doesn't sound Christian, right? You say, I'll be praying for you. The effect then is that when we say we're going to pray, in essence, we're just saying we're hoping it's going to go well. And we don't really do anything about it. Well, but that is not my goal this morning. My focus is not whether we pray or not or how much we pray. Rather, I want us to spend some time to consider how we pray. My goal this morning is to help us think rightly about prayer and where it fits in God's sovereign providence. You know, many times we view God as a vending machine where you just go push a couple buttons and get what you want and you walk away. In our case, you just go before God, say a couple right words, you get exactly what you want, life is good, and you walk away. But that is not the case. My case th- my, my this morning is to help us think rightly about prayer because we are communicating with the sovereign God who has planned everything from beginning to end, and we should learn to pray to see that plan unfold in our lives. Isaiah 46.10, Isaiah says, I, the Lord, declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And my desire is that we respond humbly like Job, in Job 42.2, I know that you can do things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. See, God in his sovereign providence has already determined every step of my life and my role as a believer is to pray for my heart to align with that ordained plan of God, praying according to his will for my life and living in obedience to that will for my life. That reality then leads us to acknowledge the fact that our prayers are not necessarily for God to act. rather. Our prayers are for our hearts to be prepared for God's will to be realized. In other words, prayer is good for me in aligning my heart for God's plan to unfold. Not necessarily how we think about it, that our prayers cause God to act. Because our prayers cannot change God's will, neither can our prayers change God's timing. A.W. Tortzer says, God cannot be talked into doing something he does not want to do or that which is against his character and nature and attributes. I cannot convince God to do something because I want him to do it. I'm not in a position nor is anyone else to negotiate with God on my terms. Yet, this is how we usually approach God as though we have the ability to cause him. To act instead of praying with expectation to see God do what He said He would do. As a result, we become frustrated Christians because we feel as though God is not interested in our prayers or He's not listening to us when the main problem is that we're praying for the wrong thing. Our prayers do not align with God's will for our lives. So you may ask, why then should I pray? Do my prayers matter? If prayers do not change God's will or cause God to act, why then should I bother praying? If God has already ordained that it will come to pass, it will come to pass whether I pray for it or not. So what is the point in prayer? Well, if your understanding of God's sovereign providence leads you to some sort of theological indifference or apathy, then your theology is lacking. You see, God in his providence did not just establish the end. He established the means as well. And prayer is one of the means God uses to bring his sovereign plan to fruition. And Daniel models that perfectly for us. So this morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. And we'll focus on verses 1 to 19. Even though verses 20 to 27 is what gets all the press. Because everyone is trying to understand what does this 70 weeks Min, we miss an important part of that first part, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. As we're going through this chapter, we're going to see seven characteristics of a faithful prayer that should shape our prayer life. Seven characteristics of a faithful prayer that should shape our prayer life. But before we do that, let's consider the circumstances of Daniel's prayer. First of all, let's consider the character Daniel himself. Daniel is well known in the Old Testament for surviving the lion's den. Him and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who survived the Pharaoh furnace for disobeying the king's command to bow down to the golden image he had erected, were among the young men who were taken into captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Whether they were taken in the first, the second, or the third wave is something commentators still argue about. It is my conviction that they were taking in the first wave, which was around 6 or 5 BC. But we know that they were about the age of 15 when they were taken into captive captivity. They were young men, yet these young men were known for their uncompromising character throughout the exile period. As of Daniel himself, he was an exceptional man with the ability to interpret dreams and he had seen visions with their fulfillment ranging from his time all the way to the end times. In fact, in the previous chapter, in chapter 8, he had just seen a vision that caused him great distress and made him sick. He says that in verse 27 of chapter 8. And I, Daniel, was over. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about king's business, but I was shocked by the vision and did not understand it. Then we come to chapter 9. It had been about 12 years from the vision in chapter 8, and the first verse is going to help us just establish the historical context for this chapter. So read with me verse 1 of Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the, by descent Emid, who was made king over the realm of the Cardians. As in the other chapters of the book, chapter 9 starts with a dead formula or chronological notice to help us with the timeline. This dead formula helps us pres- place the events of this chapter in around 539 or 538 B.C., Daniel Daniel received this revelation in the first year of Darius the Mede the name Darius is not a proper name rather it is a title for Cyrus who was king the first king of the middle Persian empire around 538 BC If Daniel was taken into captivity at the edge of 15 in 605 BC, then by this time Daniel was around 80 years of age. Now remember, the book of Daniel is all about God's sovereignty over all, and his first verse brings that theme back into the picture. Verse 1 says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus by Dis and Amid, who was made king, by who? Well, if we say Darius was the title of Cyrus, then Daniel here is acknowledging that Darius was made king by God's sovereign authority, which would support the recurring theme of the book and would also support Daniel's words in chapter 2, verse 21, that the Lord changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes of them. And God in his sovereignty set up Cyrus to be king. So he could be used as God's instrument to raid Babylon and set the people free and send them back to their land. With that hope in his heart, Daniel longed for a day he was going to see his people restored to their land. Which brings us to his prayer. And this is where we're going to see the seven characteristics of a faithful prayer. And the first is this. Faithful prayer is in response to God's word. For a faithful prayer is in response to God's word. We see that in verse 2a. Read with me verse 2a. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years. By this time in Daniel's narrative, we know a lot about Daniel. We know him along with his three friends as the most faithful men of Israel who encountered all kinds of persecution throughout their captivity for their faithfulness to God. We know Daniel as a man of prayer, uncompromising, incorruptible, consistent in his life, obedient and worshipful. And here we know him as one who invested his time in reading God's word. And that's what led him to prayer. Daniel's prayer is triggered by the word of God. The term the books, other versions say the scriptures, literally meaning writings, where the scrolls of the prophets that were available to Daniel, of which one of them is the scroll of Jeremiah, the prophet. And we don't have to insinuate that because Daniel mentioned his name in this book. But there are two possible, passage, possible passages in the book of Jeremiah that Daniel may have come across. The first one is Jeremiah 25, verses 11 to 14. And the second is Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And that's what triggered Daniel's prayer. See, we do not know how to pray, let alone what to pray for, unless we have come in contact with God's word. Apart from God's word, our prayer will be about us and what we think God needs to do for us. And if our prayers are characterized by our needs, then our prayers are shallow. Actually, we miss the whole purpose of prayer. Piper writes, if we don't form the habit of praying the scriptures, our prayers will almost suddenly degenerate into vain repetitions that eventually revolve entirely around our immediate private concerns rather than God's larger Purposes. End of quote. You want to understand how self absorbed you are? Then watch your prayer apart from the Word of God. We need God's Word to be at the center of our prayers, dictating how we pray and what we should be praying for. Isaiah fifty-five, eleven says, So shall my Word, that so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. See, scripture is not static. Scripture always calls for a response from those who hear it. After the people of Israel heard Ezra read from, read from the law of God in Nehemiah chapter 8. What did they say? Amen, amen, meaning let it be, let it be so. And that's how we're supposed to respond whenever we've come in contact with God's word. When the word speaks of God, we should long to be with him. When it speaks of his holiness, we should seek to be like him and live holy lives. For scripture says, be holy for I am holy. When it speaks of sin, we should seek to confess it and repent of it and turn away from it. When it speaks of judgment, we should long to avoid it by putting our trust in Christ. When it speaks of hell, we should pray for the lost souls. When it speaks of his coming, we should long for it. That brings to mind John. In John, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, he had spent 21 chapters detailing all that will come to pass until the ultimate return of Christ. He had seen it all. Yet, when Jesus says, behold, I come quickly, how does he respond? Amen. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You may wonder and say, John, that is superfluous, unnecessarily redundant. He just said he's coming. What are you praying for? Well, John understood that he had to align his heart with God's will. In saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. John was identifying himself with God's sovereign plan. And we're going to see Daniel doing the same thing. His prayer was in response to God's word. But there is a second characteristic. Faithful prayer is dependent on God's will. Faithful prayer is dependent on God's will. Read with me again verse 2. In the first year of his reign... I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel says he, understand, he understood by the books the number of years that must come to pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Like I said earlier, there are two possibilities or there are two possible passages from the book of Jeremiah, then the scroll did not have chapters and verses the way our Bibles are, but for us it's chapter 25, verse 11 to 14, and this is what Daniel had come across, and this whole line shall be desolation. And an astonishment, and these nations, or these people, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in the book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations, For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also, and I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. Thus Daniel understood both the length of the captivity and how the Lord in his sovereign providence was going to bring it to an end. However, in reading the scroll feather, he came across another passage. Chapter 29 Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for warfare and not for evil and so forth. So he did not only understand the number of years, but he also understood the time, that the time had come. Because he had just witnessed the destruction of Babylon, and that meant the end of captivity, captivity. He had just seen the destruction of Babylon by Silas and by Cyrus, rather he had just conquered Babylon. And if God had promised the destruction of Babylon, which he had just witnessed, then the restoration of his people, which he had promised was imminent. He understood this was God's will according to his word and he prayed to see that will being done. See, that should be our primary concern when we approach God in prayer, to see his will being done in our lives, to see his will being done in our church. Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he gave them a model of prayer that started off with a concern for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is supposed to be our primary concern in life. Daniel understood this very well, and he prayed to see that will being done. On one hand, he could see the certainty of divine sovereign purpose, and on the other hand, he felt the necessity of prayer. And it is a difficult tension to hold. The temptation when you know that God would do something is just to sit back and wait for him to do it. But this is not what Daniel models for us. He understood God's sovereign plan did not preclude the necessity of prayer. Rather, it incited it. As MacArthur puts it, if your understanding of God's providence leads you into some kind of complacency, then you don't understand how God works. God does not only establish the end, but he also establishes the process to achieve that end. And that is where our prayer falls. It is a mystery we will never fully comprehend, but it is what unites our hearts with the Lord's will. Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 34, said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What a perfect model for us to follow. His desire was to see his father's will being done through him and it was so important to him and, basic, as, as, as a basic ne- and a basic need as food is to the body. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, John says this and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to what? To his will. He hears us. When we pray, we pray within the framework of God's will to see that will unfold in our lives. Once Daniel knew God's will, having drawn it out of God's word, he knew exactly what to pray for. You are best in praying when you understand the teaching of God's word and have a framework for his will. But there is a third characteristic Faithful prayer is marked with fervency and self-denial. Faithful prayer is marked with fervency and self-denial. Read with me verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Here is one who is committed to prayer. He prayed fervently to the Lord with a heart that was determined and sincere. The phrase, I turn, literally means I gave my face to, or I gave all my attention to God, which is indicative of one who is determined to look to God in prayer until the Lord gives an answer. And the word Lord Daniel uses here is Adonai, God, who is the owner and ruler or Sovereign. Meaning, Daniel was appealing to the owner of the universe who was not only able to hear his prayer, but also has the power to direct the affairs of world history to answer his prayer. As Miller puts it, it is this knowledge that fuels Daniel's fervent prayer. He knew that God in his sovereignty, he knew that God is sovereign over all and has all the resources to answer his prayer. The sincerity of Daniel's prayer is seen in his fasting, which demonstrates his deep concern to God, and sackcloth and ashes, which is a demonstration of humility, all coming from the knowledge of God's plan for the nation of Israel. And his earnest prayer is to see that plan unfold. You may ask, why pray like that if God said he was going to do it? Well, Daniel understood that his heart had to be aligned with the will of God for God's will to come to fruition. MacArthur lays it out perfectly by saying that the great value of prayer is not what it does to me. It's not what it does to God, but rather what it does to me. I'll say that again. The great value of prayer is what it does to me and not what it does to God. Daniel didn't say, well, years of exile are coming to an end. I'm going to roll up my mat or whatever it is he was sleeping on. I'm going to put together all my scrolls, out my rocker, sit and watch the day go by and to see what the Lord is going to do next. No. Rather, he set his eyes to the Lord in humility and prayed. Prayer is not for God, but it is for you. To identify yourself with God's eternal plans. You may say, Whoa that relationship between prayer and providence doesn't make sense, and I agree with you that no, it doesn't. But a lot of things in Scripture, when we try to comprehend them with our natural mind, they don't necessarily make sense. We can't necessarily explain how Christ is fully God and fully man. We can't necessarily explain how the Bible is written by man. But every single word is God's word. With our natural minds, we cannot necessarily understand that. We cannot understand how God can predestine believers, right? And when they come to Christ, it's God's decision. When they don't make that decision, it's their decision. How does that play out? But we cannot comprehend that with our natural minds. But yet, when we think of prayer and providence, it has a lot of implications as we consider how we pray. Because it's going to structure our expectations and how we we approach prayer. True prayer comes from a heart that is committed to self-denial. A heart that is burdened and broken. Not for selfish ambition, but for a desire to see God's will being done. Fervency is demonstrated in the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he was praying in the garden, Luke 24, verse 44. He prayed with a burdened heart to a point that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground even though he knew that God was going to come out victorious, even though he knew that the very cross cross he was going to be hang on was going to be the very means God was going to put to defeat the power of sin and the power of death, Christ identified with the will of God and he prayed with fervency. But there is a fourth characteristic. Faithful prayer is marked with confession. Faithful prayer is marked with confession. Read with me verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now here is someone who is aligning his heart with God's providence. He understood that the day to return home was at hand, and for that to happen, the sins that caused them to be sent out of the land had to be confessed and repented of. This was the first step to restoration. This is how the Lord dealt with, with Israel. In Second Chronicles 7, verse 12 to 14, after someone had finished the house of the Lord, the Lord appeared to him and said, I have heard your prayer, and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. It's how God dealt with them. And that's how God deals with us. Daniel recognized the disobedience of the nation. His knowledge of the word of God is sin. in this confession, com- confession. He alludes to the law of Moses which the kings and the priests and the people of Israel at large failed to uphold. He makes allusion to, allusion, allusions to Deuteronomy as he talks about the curse that followed their disobedience. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26 to 28? The Lord warned them saying, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after the gods that you have not known. Daniel recognized the sins of the nation and knew that God had dealt with them justly for failing to abhor his commandments. You see, that is the mark of a faithful prayer coming from a repentant heart of a true believer who wants to be right with God. He humbled himself in confession before his God with fasting and sackcloth, confessing the sins of the people of God. This is the kind of humility that lacked the Pharisee in Luke 18 Chapter 9, chapter 9, chapter 18, verse 9 to 14, who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Then he went on with his list of legalistic riches he was holding on to. Then there came a tax collector, so humble, he could not even lift his head up to heaven. And he prayed, Lord, forgive me for I'm a sinner. What did Christ say? Sure, the tax collector went away justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, true prayer is marked, with, is marked with confession. It is not full of things you think you're doing well. Rather, it is a humble acknowledgement of your sins before the divine sovereign and the desire to be cleansed of them. And we see this in Daniel's prayer. A faithful prayer is in response to God's word, dependent on God's will, marked with fervency and self-denial and strengthened by confession. But there is a fifth, fifth characteristic. Faithful prayer identifies with God's people. Faithful prayer identifies with God's people. And we're going to see that all From verse five all the way through verse fourteen, throughout the whole confession, notice the plural nouns that Daniel, the plural pronouns rather that Daniel uses in his prayer. In verse five, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled against, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Verse six, we. Have not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Verse 8. To us, O Lord, belong up in shame, and to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Verse 9 through 10. We have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he said before us by his servants, the prophets. Verse 11, Oh, Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Verse 13, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. The Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he does. And we have not obeyed his voice. Here is someone who is who has taken the burden of the sins of the whole nation and present them before God as though they were his own. We know Daniel as an uncompromising, faithful, committed to God, above reproach, someone whose example is to be emulated. Yet, when it came to confessing, he did not set himself aside and shove the blame on everyone else but himself. He identified with the people of God in his confession confessing of their obedience and though, as though it was his own. And this is not to say that Daniel was perfect, for we know that there is only one who is perfect and walks through his life or earthly ministry without breaking a single law, and that is Christ our Lord, who is in heaven now interceding for us. But in your prayers, do you identify yourself with the people of God do you identify yourself with the church God has put you in? Do you feel the need to pray for our church? Do you bear other people's burdens in our church as though they were your own? We just talked about biblical soul care. and Do you take their burdens, present them before God, praying for them as though they were your own burdens? See, faithful prayer identifies with God's people. And there is a sixth characteristic. Faithful prayer is dependent upon God's character. Faithful prayer is dependent upon God's character. Read with me verse 4b. O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is the main element of the prayer that we must understand as believers as we think of providence. Our prayers are not answered depending on the time we spend praying or using fancy complicated words. But the answer to our prayer is entirely dependent on God, who he is, his character. And this is exactly what Daniel did. First, he reminded himself that God is one who keeps his covenant in verse 4. He should act upon his word because he is a God who keeps his covenant. He had spoken through his servant Jeremiah and promised that, you know, I'm going to come to your rescue after 70 years. And Daniel's plea was simple. God, do what you said you're going to do. Not because Daniel wanted it. Not only that, but he also reminds himself of He also reminds himself that God is righteous, and we see that in verse 7. And his reminder of God's righteousness led him to confessing the sins of the nation, knowing that the way they lived was contrary to the law they were given, hence acknowledging that what they were facing was justice because God is righteous, It's not like God punished them for something they did not know. He made it clear over and over again that if you keep my statutes and do as I have commanded you, blessings will come your way. And if you don't, you will be cursed. And I'll hand you over to the nations. The Israelites knew this. Thus, In other words, Daniel is acknowledging that they deserved the punishment because they knew the right thing, yet they continued in their disobedience. And that's one thing that we should take more seriously as believers. Sometimes we take God's love, his grace, and patience for granted. We focus on God being merciful, gracious Father, and we ignore the fact that he is a righteous judge too, and time is coming when he's going to judge. Paul warns us in Romans, should we continue sinning so that grace should abound the more? By no means. And as much as God loves us, he loves his righteousness more, his holiness more, which is why he didn't overlook our sin, but came down, dying, carrying our iniquity to the cross, and he was hanged on our behalf. That's how serious God is with his holiness. God will never compromise his righteous character for our sin. So we need to take sin seriously in our lives and confess it. Thirdly, he reminded himself that God is merciful and forgiving. We see that in verse 9 and verse uh, 18c. To the Lord our God belong the mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Verse 18c. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel reminded himself that his God was a merciful and forgiving God. And because of that great mercy, he should forgive their sins and restore them to their land. Lastly, he reminded himself that he wasn't praying to any other God, but to the God who the nations talked about and trembled when they heard how he took his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand in verse 15. Like I said earlier, Daniel understood that he was appealing to the God whose power was renowned. That he knew for certain he was not only able to hear his prayer, but also has the power to direct the affairs of world history to answer his prayer. And his reference to the, to the Exodus narrative just shows Daniel's extent of hope. God had miraculously and victoriously rescued his people from Egypt and Daniel wanted to witness God do that again with his people in Babylon. Therefore Daniel's heartfelt prayer was dependent on God's character. God you've done this. I've read it. I know it. It's my prayer that you do it again because it's what's consistent with your character. Are your prayers dependent on God's character? And then there is the last one, the seventh. Faithful prayer is offered for God's glory. And we see that in verses 16 to 19. Faithful prayer is offered for God's glory. Read with me verse 16 all the way down to 19. Oh, Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, oh our Lord, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the pleas for mercy and for your own sake. Oh, Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your, hear, your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our, of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh God, because your city is and your people are called by your name. At the very core of Daniel's prayer was not a desire to return home. It was not just a desire to return home, but a desire to see God glorified because these people who were afflicted in exile were called by whose name? God's name. After coming in contact with the revelation, It would be easy to say, Lord, you said you were going to do it, now do it and get us out of here. For we have suffered the full term of the punishment. But that was not Daniel's disposition. He implored with God to act according to his righteous character. He implored with God to act because the devout devout city of Jerusalem was God's city, his holy hill. He implored with God to act because Israel was his people and had become a byword, which meant that the nations looked down on their God as well. Remember how they were known for the exodus and how every nation was afraid of them because of their God? Well, now that Israel was being humiliated in exile, guess whose name was on the line? God's name. So Daniel says, "Not for us, Lord, no, not for us, but for the sake of your name and for the sake of your glory, restore your people to their land." Daniel's concern was God's reputation because Daniel's concern was God's reputation because of what had become of his people. He had witnessed it all. They were forced to bow down to idols and they were mocked and asked to sing songs of Yahweh, the songs of Zion. The psalmist captures this for us in Psalm Psalm 137, verse 1 to 4. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hang up our lyres. For For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they responded, How shall we sing the Lord's song? in a foreign land. The nations mocked them. What kind of God do you have? What kind of God can even protect you? What kind of God would let a pagan nation take you into captivity? What kind of God would make you a byword among the nations around you? What kind of God would let your city be raided? His temple crushed to the ground. What kind of God would let you become slaves to a pagan nation? Definitely they thought their idols were mightier than the God of Israel. Thus Daniel turned to God and said, God, you see what is happening? It's not necessarily our reputation that is on the line here, but your reputation because we are called by your name. So take us back and make us what you want us to be that your name may be glorified among the nations again. That was the gist of Daniel's prayer. He was consumed by a desire to see God glorified again, both among his people and among the nations. Oh my God, he says in verse 18, Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your grace. Mercy, in verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your sake, for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's prayer of resurrection was so that God may be glorified. Have you prayed that way? For the Lord to revive the church because his church or because your church is called by his name. Time is running from me here. So let's move on and talk about some takeaways. So what do we make of this? How should this inform our prayer? Well, the first one is this. Make scripture an essential part of your prayer life. Make scripture an essential part of your prayer life. You see, Daniel was informed by God's word. When he prayed, he prayed according to God's word. As he prays for restoration, as he prays for for that, he might be righteous and that the people might be righteous. He knows that God is righteous and that's his desire for them. As he prays for mercy and forgiveness, he knows that God, the God he serves, is a merciful and a forgiving God. As he asked for God's great power to be made known, so that he may take the people back to their land, he knows that he is a God who has great power. Like I said earlier, he calls him Adonai, Lord, Ruler, Sovereign, over all. As he prays for restoration, so that he as he prays for restoration, he prays so that God's name may be glorified. He knows that God He knows that God was sovereign, and he understood His sovereign providence. It's all about his glory. Therefore, he identifies his heart, his petitions with God's purposes. So everything he says and prays for is inconsistent with what he knows is true about his God. See, that's what Scripture does for us. That knowledge of God cannot be acquired apart from the word of God. You have to be immersed in the word of God and you let that word shape your prayer life. I said earlier, we do not know how to pray, let alone what to pray for apart from the word of God. Our prayers will be infested with personal needs. Our prayers will turn into demands. I need this, I need that. Oh, and don't forget to give me that too. We will not pray for God's will to be done because we do not know what that will is apart from his word. We will not pray for his purposes to be fulfilled because we do not know what his purposes are apart from his word. We will not pray and identify ourselves with his church because we do not know how to be selfless apart from his word. Christ would say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his will because he knew the will of the Father, and he made that his sole purpose of existence throughout his earthly ministry. And that is how we're supposed to live, to build our lives around the will of God, to pray for his will to be done on earth, and to his, for his purposes to be fulfilled in us and through us. But we cannot do any of that apart from the word of God. And I'm not talking about reading to become familiar with the storyline, but I'm talking about reading with understanding to let those truths transform your life and inform how you pray. Richard Greenham wrote, Men may read or hear the word diligently, but without meditation, it bears no fruit. Meditation makes that which we have heard become our own. When you're immersed in in, in the word of God, guess what? The word of God is going to come out in your prayer life. So make the study of God's word an essential part of your life. That should inform how you pray and what you pray for. The second, embrace God's sovereign plan for you in your prayer life. Embrace God's sovereign plan for you in your prayer life. Daniel models that perfectly. He learned God's sovereign plan for his people, and he embraced it and prayed to see that plan fulfilled. God's sovereign plan is the best plan for your life, even when that plan includes suffering. I think of Joseph, who after being sold by his own brother, he went through prison. What did he say when he finally got to see his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So things may seem to be going against you, be it health-wise or career-wise, but God's plan for your life is still at play, and he's working all these things together for your good, even though it may not feel like it. And he's going to accomplish his glory through that. Jesus in John chapter 9, when asked by his disciples, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He was born blind. What did Christ say? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born like this so that the glory of God may be revealed through him. You need to remember that God has supreme and meticulous control over all that happens in your life and that plan cannot be thwarted. Who do you run to when you are afflicted? Do you go back to scripture to seek encouragement from God's word or you find solace in some external blessings God has given you, be it worth or career or you name it? It would have been easy for Daniel to find comfort in his success. I mean, throughout his time in exile, he was, he was living in the, king, in, in the king's palace. He was an official throughout, but yet he was afflicted in his own heart. He was burdened. He was broken with a desire To see Zion restored, a desire for God's plan to be realized. Throughout his exile, it was his custom to throw open the windows of his upper chamber, praying facing Jerusalem, even when it meant he was putting his head on the line. Here is a man who remembered God throughout his afflictions. He reminded himself of God's will. He reminded himself of God's character. A fervent prayer stemmed out of it and he confessed for the nation, identified himself with God's people and all that for God's glory. Jeremiah Barrow says, ordinarily when we are burdened with outward afflictions, we only think of natural helps and comforts. Where's the way for us to sanctify God's name, to do what is acceptable to God when any outward affliction comes is to exercise our faith in the great promise of God in Jesus Christ upon the great covenant of grace that God has made with us in Him. May you remind yourself of God's sovereignty or God's sovereign plan for your life and embrace it in your own life. And lastly, focus on God's glory in your prayers. Focus on God's glory in your prayers. God's glory should be the motive behind your prayer. Many times when we come to God in prayers, we come with a grocery list of things that we want God to do for us. And that is not wrong in and of itself. I believe in asking God for things because his word instructs us to do so. Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you. One Puritan says, it is a natural and reasonable, it is an, as natural and reasonable for a dependent creature to apply to its creator for what it needs, as for a child thus to solicit the aid of a parent who is believed to have the disposition and ability to bestow what it needs. So I believe it is important to come before God with a list of things we are trusting him to provide for us, but when our prayers are just characterized by a grocery list of things we want God to do for us, then prayer just turns into a means of getting what I want God to do for me. But see, prayer is more than that. Prayer is more than asking God to do things for us. Prayer aligns your heart with God's providential plan for your life, with his will and with his purposes, and to what end? so that he may be glorified in us and through us, through our church. May we not be consumed with desires to see God meet our needs, but we should, above all, be consumed with a desire to see God be glorified. His name being revealed. His name revered and made known through us. As a church, we've made this our mission To magnify God and spread a passion for his glory. May we own this mission, not just corporately as a church, but as individuals as well. And may it be reflected in how we live and how we pray and what we pray for. Let's bow in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for your word. Thank you so much, Lord, for the instruction on how we should pray. So Lord, we pray that you help us to be men and women of prayer. May you cause us to love your word. Cause us to love your church. That you may be glorified in us and through us. It is in Christ's name, Lord, we pray. Amen.